From uh, about 15 years on up, uh, a great deal of my thoughts were uh, basically unshareable. We are all evil in some form or another. Yes, I am not 100%, but I am evil. My mother was a, a sick, angry, hungry, and very sad woman. I hated her, but I wanted to love my mother. This is Serial Killing, a podcast. Hello again, and welcome to Serial Killing, a podcast. This is Alyssa Carroll, and I am your host and the creator of at serial underscore killing on Instagram, where we go through the life stories of serial killers to see if we might catch a glimpse of why they displayed their famous vile and disturbing behaviors. This week's podcast will be on Jack the Ripper. Now, the story of good old Jack has been around the block many, many times. We've seen tons of documentaries about him on TV, articles speculating who the Ripper actually was, and some of them immediately grabbed our attention, like the distant relative of H.H. Holmes who had thought he was actually the Ripper, one even entertaining the notion that Jack was in fact a woman. So, why am I making a podcast about Jack the Ripper when we've already heard it all and seen it all? Well, because now, after using DNA evidence traced with a suspect's lineage, we think we might actually know who he was, or we are as sure as we can be for now. So as we do, let's get into the backstory. In 1888, London was struck by one of the most famous serial killers of all time. He chose to commit his murders in one of London's most poverty-stricken areas at that time, the East End. By the late 1800s, London was the largest capital city in all of the world. Victoria was the queen and had been on the throne for over 50 years. In fact, this was during the Victorian era. 18-year-old Victoria became the Queen of the United Kingdom on June 20, 1837, when her uncle, King William IV, died. During her era, life went from overt realism and rationalism to more romantic and even mystic values with regards to religion, the arts, and the social structure. The politics were becoming more liberal, and at the same time, there was a push for industrial reform. The population of England, Wales, and Scotland skyrocketed, while the opposite was happening in Ireland due to the Great Famine, and a solid portion of that population immigrated out to countries such as the United States, Canada, South Africa, New Zealand, and Australia. Voting rights were slowly extending outwards from the elite. Also, the invention of the telegraph as well as the building of more railways and steamships, gave way to much faster communications. In 1851, London hosted the Great Exhibition, which was the first World's Fair to attempt to unite countries together and help economic growth through international trade. Now, I want you to remember that H.H. Holmes was able to use his Hotel of Horrors during the World's Fair in Chicago, 
but we'll talk about him in another podcast. Britain wanted to show to the world its superior steel, iron, textiles, and machines and wanted to show that technology was going to help create a better future. Of course, not to be outdone, the United States also came to the exhibition and showed the world's stage that their industrial revolution was well underway. And though the U.S. did manage to moderately outshine Britain, its strength, superiority, and pride was increasing. Queen Victoria herself wrote in her journal, quote, We saw beautiful china from Minton's factory and beautiful designs, unquote. The Crystal Palace was built, and it was the largest greenhouse in the world, even having full-sized trees housed within. It was an architectural marvel and wowed the exhibition audience. But with all of this opulence and wealth, it was impossible not to see the horrific poverty that some civilians lived in. Queen Victoria's husband, Prince Albert, was sympathetic and... Once the exhibition had been open for months, he dropped the prices of the tickets down so low that it made it affordable for most people. He wanted everyone to be able to enjoy it, so the working class was able to walk through in spellbound silence and marveled at everything. The proceeds from the exhibition funded three London museums, the Victoria and Albert Museum, the Science Museum, and the Natural History Museum. And with the leftover money, which was ample, there were trusts set up for people to be able to get grants and scholarships for industrial research that is still very much a thing today. Also during this time, London had many newspapers, journals, periodicals, and also libraries. And the city influenced so much literature during that time. Authors like Charles Dickens, Robert Browning, George Eliot, Thomas Carlyle, and so many more. London was the home of the greatest port in the world and the center of commerce and culture at that time. It was a time for intellectuals and the advances in science and medicine were extraordinary. During this time, thoughts on human life changed so drastically that there arose a sort of panic from the church, stating that there was a, quote, crisis of religious faith, though there was, at that time, more churches being built than ever before. So, with all of this progressiveness and opulence, what of London's East End? It was in strike contrast compared to the rest of London. For most of the citizens of London, the East End was considered an area one of any class simply did not visit. Nearly a million people lived in the East End, and about a quarter of that population lived in Whitechapel. Whitechapel was exceedingly overpopulated, crowded, crime-ridden. The roads were like a maze, and much of the area, with its roads and alleys only lit by one single gas lamp. Needless to say, it was a very dark and ominous at night. Cattle and sheep were ushered through the streets, leaving animal waste everywhere, and the people that lived there often threw their own waste buckets out into the streets as well. 
The living conditions were such that most homes and buildings were completely infested with roaches and rats. They had no way of managing sewage and the houses were damp with no ventilation. Along with malnutrition, you can imagine the disease running rampant. At that time, nearly half of all children died before they saw their fifth birthday. Streets like Flower Street, Dean Street, and Thrall Street were super bad, but one street, hell, even the police refused to patrol down it without being in groups, and that was Dorset Street. Most of the people living there were poorly educated, with very little or no money at all. Sometimes two or three families could live in a one-room apartment because anything else was simply not affordable. A lot of the people were immigrants who had to work an incredible amount of hours to try to survive, and the pay was ridiculously low. The slums of Whitechapel were the worst of all. There, the homeless and the unemployed slept where they laid and spent their time drinking their problems away in pubs, and Whitechapel did not hurt for pubs. And. As hard as it was for men of that area to find stable employment, you can imagine it was nearly impossible for the women. Many resorted to prostitution so that they could survive. They simply had no choice. It is thought that, by some estimations, that there were around 1,200 prostitutes working in the Whitechapel area at that time, but that number could be significantly higher. Some even prostituted themselves for a mere loaf of stale bread. A significant portion of these women were alcoholics and would hang around outside the pubs. And due to this very difficult lifestyle, many women looked hard and old beyond their years. Their teeth were rotting. Most had venereal diseases and the violent abuse these women endured was so common, it became uncommon for any of them to see any justice so many just didn't bother to report it. Most of the rest of London preferred to live as if that part simply didn't exist. So, it was in this environment, or hunting grounds I should say, where Jack the Ripper became famous. So, let's get into the timeline. Now remember when I said that attacks on women were pretty common in this part of London? During Jack's reign, there were a total of 11 murders, referred to as the Whitechapel Murders, that started in April of 1888 and continued until February 1891. Now, not all of these murders have been linked to Jack, though it's not out of the realm of possibility that they are his. The murders that are widely accepted as Jack's are called the Canonical Five, which include Mary Ann Nichols, Annie Chapman, Elizabeth Stride, Catherine Eddowes, and Mary Jane Kelly. They did go by other names, but these are the names I'm going to use. Now, the others either stated that they were attacked by more than one person, sort of like gang violence, or the fatal injuries suffered by the victim did not match the pattern and savagery of the canonical five. But again, it is at least plausible that all 11 were Jacks. But for today, we are only going to concentrate on the five. Victim number one, 
Mary Ann Walker, also nicknamed Polly, was born on August 26, 1845. Her father, Edward, was a locksmith, and her mother's name was Caroline. She married William Nichols, who was a printer's machinist, and they had five children together. They then separated in 1881. Now, William stated Mary Ann deserted the family to be a drunk and a prostitute. However, Mary Ann said it was because William was having an affair with the nurse who had aided her in her last childbirth. Regardless, after their separation, William continued to support Mary Ann in the amount of five shillings a week. Now, I did the math with the time difference. So that's roughly the same as 28 pound 59 pence in today's money or $37.26 per week. That's nothing. You can't live on that. But once he had definitive proof that she was in fact a prostitute, he quit paying her entirely. She was forced to work the streets, living off what she could earn from prostitution and charity handouts. She began living in a Whitechapel common lodging house and had a roommate named Emily or Nellie Holland. Around 11 p.m. on August 30th, 1888, Mary Ann was seen walking Whitechapel Road at 12.30 a.m. She was seen leaving a pub, but one hour later she was ordered to leave a place to sleep because she could not pay. The last time anyone saw Mary Ann alive was at 2.30 a.m. by her roommate, who said Mary Ann had bragged that she had made good money from prostitution that night, but had in fact wasted it on alcohol. At about 3.40 a.m., a man saw her body lying on the ground about 100 yards from the London hospital. Her skirt had been pulled up. Another passerby saw the man standing over the woman's body just as the first man called him over and they both took a look. One man said she was dead. The other said she was most likely unconscious. They pulled her skirt down to preserve her dignity and went looking for a policeman. The men then left and the policeman went to investigate. Another two officers were also coming to the scene. No one interviewed said they heard or saw anything suspicious. The policeman determined she was dead and summoned a doctor who arrived at 4 a.m. and said it appeared that she had been dead for about 30 minutes. Marianne's throat was slashed and her abdomen had a large, jagged slit along with several other cuts. The knife used was thought to be at least 6 to 8 inches long. She had been violently killed and mutilated. The injury to her throat would have killed her nearly instantly and her abdominal injuries came after death. She was 43 years old. She was buried at the City of London Cemetery and in 1996 her grave was marked with a plaque. Victim number two. Annie Chapman was born Eliza Ann Smith in 1841 to George Chapman and Ruth Smith, but the couple married after she was born. Annie grew up and married her first cousin on her father's side, John Chapman, who was a coachman. They originally lived in West London and went on to have three children. Their first child, Emily Ruth, died of meningitis at 12 years old. Their youngest child, John, had been born with some sort of disability 
And after this, Annie's husband began drinking heavily and the marriage was over in 1884. The disabled child had been put in a special school and the middle daughter was in a traveling circus in France. By 1886, Annie had moved to Whitechapel and was living with another man. Her ex-husband had been sending her 10 shillings a week and then all of a sudden the payments had stopped completely. And Annie soon found out that John had died from his alcoholism. The man she was living with soon left her, most likely because she was no longer receiving that money. Annie sank into a deep depression, according to one of her friends, and they even took to calling her, quote, Dark Annie. In 1888, she was living in what they called a common lodging house in Whitechapel and was on and off dating a much older man who was a bricklayer. She would crochet cloths and sell flowers to make extra money and only occasionally working as a prostitute, but only if she were truly desperate. She was a hard worker and considered a fair and nice person, but drinking diminished some of that. At about 1.45 a.m. on September 8, 1888, which was eight days after Marianne's murder, Annie Chapman hit the streets to make some money to pay for her lodging for the night. A witness stated that she saw Annie speaking with a man at around 5.30 a.m. and described the man as over 40, average height, dark hair, and looked like a foreigner. He had been wearing what they called a deer stalker hat, which looks sort of like a baseball cap with two bills or maybe like a Sherlock Holmes type hat, and he was also wearing a dark overcoat. Another man who was residing in the house with the yard she was found close to later stated that he had heard a scuffle and something falling against the fence of the yard around 5.30 a.m. At 6 a.m., a man found her body lying on the ground near a door in his backyard. Her throat had been slashed and she had also been disemboweled. The murderer had taken her intestines and thrown them out of her abdominal cavity and then placed some over each of her shoulders. Part of her uterus had been removed. Her face was swollen and her tongue was partially out of her mouth, leading the medical examiner to think that she might have been strangled before her throat had been cut. It was also determined that she was sober at the time of her murder. It was with this victim that some experts began to say that the murderer must have some kind of anatomical knowledge due to the fact that part of the uterus had been removed with only one cut from a knife, described exactly the same as the knife used on Mary Ann. Annie was 47 years old and buried in a public grave at the Manor Park Cemetery, but in 2008 her grave was marked with a plaque. On September 27th, a letter was received at the Central News Agency of London, written in red ink. It read, quote, Dear Boss, I keep on hearing the police have caught me, but they won't fix me just yet. I have laughed when they look so clever and talk about being on the right track. That joke about leather apron gave me real fits. I am down on whores, and I shan't quit ripping them till I do get buckled grand work the last job was, I gave the lady no time to squeal. 
How will they catch me now? I love my work and want to start again. You will soon hear of me with my funny little games. I saved some of the proper red stuff in a ginger beer bottle over the last job to write with, but it went thick like glue and I can't use it. Red ink is fit enough, I hope, ha ha. The next job I do, I shall clip the lady's ears off and send to the police officers just for Julie, wouldn't you? Keep this letter back till I do a bit more work, then give it out straight. My knife's so nice and sharp, I want to work right away if I get a chance. Good luck. Yours truly, Jack the Ripper. Don't mind me giving the trade name. P.S. Wasn't good enough to post this before I got all the red ink off my hands. Curse it. No luck yet. They say I'm a doctor now. Ha ha. I know there's grammatical errors and oddness in that, but I read it verbatim. Now, sometime after the murders, a journalist confessed to writing this letter to, quote, keep the business alive. Victim number three. Elizabeth Gustaf's daughter was born on November 27, 1843 in Sweden to Gustaf, a farmer, and Bieta. In 1860, when she was 17 years old, she began working as a housemaid and servant, and by 1865, she was already well known to the local Swedish police that she was a prostitute. She had to be medically treated twice for sexually transmitted diseases, and she even gave birth to a daughter who was unfortunately stillborn that same year. In 1866, she moved to London with a family as their servant. Three years later, she married John Thomas Stride, who was a ship's carpenter. Elizabeth was 26. John was 39. Together, they ran a coffee room in East London. They had no children, and the marriage was over by 1877. John Stride died from tuberculosis in 1884. After Elizabeth and her husband separated, she began living in a common lodging house in Whitechapel. She would sometimes receive charity money from the Church of Sweden in London. She met and began living with a dock worker and earned money from being a housekeeper as well as sewing. Her friends described her as having a nice, calm personality, but she was also in trouble a few times for being drunk and disorderly. On the night of her murder, she was seen wearing rather nice clothing and a nice bonnet, indicating that she might have been entertaining clients. She was also seen with a short man with a dark mustache, also dressed nicely, at around 11 p.m. At 11.45, she was seen with a completely different man. At 12.35 a.m., a man saw Elizabeth with a man carrying a package that was approximately 18 inches long. Then, at 1 a.m. on September 30, 1888, less than a month after Annie's murder, Elizabeth's body was found in a small yard by a man driving a two-wheeled cart pulled by a horse. He lit a match to be able to see better, and when he did, he said the blood was still flowing from her neck, indicating she had been murdered only moments before. There were no witnesses, and nothing was reported as suspicious that could be linked to her murder. 
Elizabeth's throat had been cut very deep, but her body was still warm. It has been thought that the man in his buggy interrupted the murderer and might have still been in the yard when the man drove his buggy up into the yard and the murderer managed to sneak away. Elizabeth was 45 years old and buried in the East London Cemetery. She has a headstone with her name and years alive engraved on it. Victim number four. Catherine or Kate Eddowes was born on April 14, 1842 in Graisley Green, Wolverhampton, which is just northwest of Birmingham. Her parents were George and Catherine and she was one of 12 children. A year after her birth, the family moved to London, but as she got old enough to work, she moved back to Wolverhampton and got a job as a 10-plate stamper. She didn't have the job long, so she and her boyfriend, Thomas Conway, moved back to London where they proceeded to have one daughter and two sons. She eventually began drinking heavily and abandoned her family in 1880. At that time, she was 38 years old. She eventually began living with another man in a common lodging house in a badly crime-ridden area. She began prostituting herself to be able to pay her rent. In July of 1888, Kate and some friends went to Kent to pick hops, but when the harvest was over, they went back to London and blew through their money on alcohol and were soon broke. On September 29th, Kate was seen lying in the road, drunk, at 8.30 p.m. The police took her to the station, where she remained until she was sober, and then they released her at about 1 a.m. Three witnesses saw her at 1.35 a.m. talking to a man described as having a mustache, wearing a navy jacket, cap, and a red scarf. Kate's body was found by a policeman at 1.45 a.m. while he was patrolling. She was on her back, her bonnet having fallen behind her head. Her face had been disfigured and her throat had been slit. Her dress was pulled up to her stomach and her intestines had been pulled out and draped over her right shoulder. The murderer had cut a section of her intestine out and had put it between her torso and her arm purposefully. Her left kidney and most of her uterus had been removed. The murderer had cut some of Kate's bloodied apron and taken it with him, but then dropping it in front of another boarding house. Kate's body was still warm. Supposedly, among the evidence taken from the scene was Kate's silk shawl that had her blood and a man's semen on it. Now, it is important to note that Jack the Ripper had killed Elizabeth Stride, victim number three, on the same night, not even an hour before he murdered Kate. Kate was 46 years old. She was buried in the City of London Cemetery in an unmarked grave, but in 1996, the cemetery keepers marked her grave with a plaque. A postcard was received at the Central News Agency on October 1st, 1888 that said, quote, I was not cotting, dear old boss, when I gave you the tip. You'll hear about Saucy Jack's work tomorrow. Double event this time. Number one squealed a bit, couldn't finish straight off. 
Had not time to get ears off for police. Thanks for keeping last letter back until I got to work again. Jack the Ripper. Unquote. However, the same journalist that confessed to writing the Dear Boss letter also stated that he wrote this postcard. But also on October 1st, the police decided to tell the public about the name Jack the Ripper and made his letter public. So, a package containing one half of a human kidney, as well as a note, were received by the chairman of the Whitechapel Vigilance Committee, George Lusk, on October 16, 1888. The note stated, quote, From hell, Mr. Lusk, sir, I send you half the kidney I took from one woman, preserved it for you, the other piece I fried and ate it was very nice. I may send you the bloody knife that took it out, if you only wait a while longer. Signed, Catch Me When You Can, Mr. Lusk. Unquote. Now, this letter is one of the only letters received that has been deemed most likely to be authentically from Jack the Ripper. Victim number five. Mary Jane Kelly was born in 1863, but the exact date is not known. She was born in Limerick, Ireland. Her father was John, but there is no record of her mother's name. In fact, her entire early life is not really known, and the information we do have about her comes from her last live-in boyfriend and a few of her friends. Mary stated that she had seven brothers and one sister and that the family had moved to Wales before she was grown. Her landlord stated that she did, on a rare occasion, receive letters from Ireland. Her friends said that her family had been fairly well off, but others stated that she was illiterate, asking others to read newspapers for her. It is believed that she began prostituting herself in 1879 at just 16 years old in Cardiff. In 1884, she moved to London and began to work in a brothel in the West End, which was not actually nearly as poverty-stricken as the East End. Mary was invited by one of her clients to go to France, but she came back after two weeks, stating she didn't really like it there. She was described as a very attractive young lady, and she took pride in keeping her clothes clean, especially her bright white apron. Like the other girls, Mary liked her booze, and people reported that when she was drunk, she would sing Irish songs, but she also had a temper and was known to get belligerent. In 1888, Mary and her boyfriend moved into a single room 12-foot apartment that had a bed, three small tables, a chair, and a fireplace. The window by the door was broken and the key to the lock itself was missing, so she would put her hand through the window to lock and unlock her door. When Mary's boyfriend saw that she was still prostituting herself and she was also letting another working girl stay in the apartment, he left her. On the night of November 8th, a little over a month after the last murders, Mary was seen going into her rented room with a man described as a, quote, stout ginger man wearing a bowler hat and carrying a can of beer, 
unquote, at about 11.45 p.m. One of her neighbors said she could hear Mary inside singing and that the singing had stopped around 1.30 a.m. A man stated that Mary had met him around 2 a.m. and asked him for money, but he told her he was broke and she walked away. He said that she was approached by a man who looked to be of Jewish descent who was giving Mary a red handkerchief. She was then seen leading this man to her apartment. Another witness stated that the man she saw was wearing very fine clothing and he stood out because it appeared that he had wealth, which was not common in that area. This was at around 2.30 a.m. A couple of people reported hearing someone cry out, MURDER! at about 4 a.m., but thought nothing of it because apparently that was common. So anyway, at 10.45 a.m. on the 9th, only hours after, Mary's landlord sent his assistant to go to the apartment to collect the rent as she was quite behind. He knocked on the door and after getting no response, he reached through the window and let himself in. What he discovered was Mary's horrendously mutilated body lying on her bed. The assistant ran from the residence to get the police. The time of death was estimated to have happened between 2 and 8 a.m. The medical examiner said this about her remains. Now I have to paraphrase and also it's very graphic so I'm warning you ahead of time. Okay. Quote, the body was lying naked in the middle of the bed. The head was turned on the left cheek. The left arm was close to the body with the forearm flexed at a right angle and lying across the abdomen. The right arm was slightly abducted from the body and rested on the mattress. The elbow was bent with fingers clenched. The legs were wide apart the left thigh at right angles to the trunk and the right forming an obtuse angle with the pubis. The whole of the surface of the abdomen and thighs were removed and the abdominal cavity emptied of its viscera. The breasts were cut off, the arms mutilated by several jagged wounds and the face hacked beyond recognition of the features. The tissues of the neck were severed all around down to the bone the viscera were found in various parts. The uterus and kidneys with one breast under the head, the other breast by the right foot, the liver between the feet, the intestines by the right side, and the spleen by the left side of the body. The flaps removed from the abdomen and thighs were on a table. The face was gashed in all directions, the nose, cheeks, eyebrows and ears being partly removed. The lips were cut by several incisions running obliquely down to the chin." Unquote. The medical examiner believed that she had died from the slash to her throat and that all of the mutilation happened after she was already dead. He also stated that he did not believe the murderer had any prior medical or surgical knowledge and he also did not believe that he would even have the knowledge of a butcher. Being inside and off the streets meant Jack the Ripper could relax, take his time, 
and enjoy his work. Mary was only 25 years old and she was buried in the Roman Catholic Cemetery at Leytonstone. After this, the Ripper went dark. There were other murders in the Whitechapel area, but none were officially connected to him. So, taking all of the witness statements, looking at all of the evidence, comparing with police reports, experts at that time agreed that Jack the Ripper was a male who was a local in the area in his late 20s who most likely had a full-time job as the murders happened around weekends. He was single with no family as the murders happened in the middle of the night. He was of low class with no surgical or butchering experience and probably had a past police record. The Ripper was probably a loner and it was thought that he was probably abused, neglected, or deserted by his mother as a child. So, remember the shawl that Kate Eddowes had? It was allegedly found next to Kate's body. Now, the shawl had blood and other biological material on it. In 2007, a man named Russell Edwards was able to get the silk shawl and send it to be DNA tested. The shawl was subjected to infrared imagery and spectrophotometry testing. They examined the stains via microscope as well as looking at it with ultraviolet light. Now, with the UV light, they were able to see one stain that was most likely semen. The team that were testing the shawl stated there was very little modern contamination, which is a good sign, and the DNA they were able to sample was degraded enough to be consistent with the age of the shawl, meaning that the shawl wasn't a fake, and the DNA on the shawl was also old enough to be consistent. The team then looked at the mitochondrial DNA from the sample. This type of DNA only comes from the mother's side and is passed down from mother to child. They then obtained a DNA sample of a close descendant of Kate Eddowes, and the blood DNA was a match. Therefore, the shawl did belong to Kate. They then tested the DNA of the semen against one of the suspect's descendants, and it was a match for the first and one of the main suspects of the Ripper murders, a man named Aaron Kosminski. So let's talk about Aaron. Aaron Kosminski was born on September 11, 1865 in Poland. His parents were Abram and Gulda. His father was a tailor. He was Jewish and immigrated with his sisters and their families to England in the 1880s. In fact, many Jewish people were leaving Poland at that time. He was a barber in the Whitechapel area, but it was said that he wasn't able to hold any stable employment for long. It is rumored that he lived with his sisters and they helped support him. On July 12, 1890, Aaron was put in the Mile End Old Town Workhouse because he was suffering from a mental illness and it was becoming worse, but then he was released three days later. Then, in 1891, he was admitted into the Colney Hatch Lunatic Asylum. 
His admit paper stated that he had threatened one of his sisters with a knife. He stayed in that asylum until he was transferred to Leavesden Asylum. Doctors noted that he had suffered from his mental illness since about 1885. He had auditory hallucinations. He was paranoid. He was terrified about people and how they handled his food, and he also refused to bathe. He was in a constant state of malnutrition due to his paranoia. Now, of course, they said his illness came from, quote, self-abuse, which was back then what they called masturbation. But from the symptoms, it sounds more like schizophrenia. He continued to refuse to eat, and when he died in March 1919, he only weighed 96 pounds. He was 53 years old when he died. So the argument against Aaron being the Ripper is that some do not believe the Ripper was doing this for sexual gratification and therefore would not have left semen anywhere. That the semen only proves that Aaron had intercourse with Kate. But others argue that Aaron could have been having some sort of sexual experience with her as she was lying down when her body was found and slit her throat while she was, let's say, concentrating on other things. Another interesting correlation to the murders with regards to Aaron is that his mental state was beginning to decline rapidly right around the time of the murders and he was admitted to his first asylum only months after the last murder, which would explain the sudden disappearance of Jack and the Ripper. Aaron was also of Jewish descent, and many of the descriptions from witnesses stated that the men that were with these ladies looked like they were of Jewish descent. Now that we've gone through this entire story, the DNA evidence, no matter which side of the fence that you are now standing on, it is at least compelling, and it has at least taken the case one step closer to potentially being solved someday. So what do you think? You can leave me comments on my Instagram page at serial underscore killing or on my YouTube page under the same name of this podcast. You can also visit my website at serialkilling.squarespace.com or you can leave me comments on Patreon. Thank you so very much for listening. I appreciate each one of you as I know that you could be listening to anyone or anything else and yet you chose me and I appreciate that. Thanks and have a great day. Music by Kevin MacLeod on Incompetech.com.